Um, it is great to have you. Welcome to Torah Studies. Welcome, Joy. Welcome, David. And maybe Yona. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Mike and Sarah. Good to see you guys. Welcome, Donna. Welcome, Susan. And maybe Richard soon. Welcome, Paul. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Donna and Fred, welcome. Adina Malka, welcome. Stephanie, welcome. Danny, welcome. Lisa, welcome. And Mom, welcome. All right, it is great to have everybody here. Let's get, let's get rolling because we have just way too much good stuff to get to. It is Erev Hanukkah. It's the eve of Hanukkah tomorrow. Well, tonight, tomorrow. Erev Hanukkah. Hanukkah begins tomorrow night, the first candle. And uh, it's, it's uh, important to talk about light, to talk about positivity, and to talk about um, topics that will uplift us and inspire us. So the goal is to cover all that tonight and then some. All right, Torah portion, Vayeshev, is dominated by, it's dominated by the drama of Joseph, Yosef. It's, it's the whole, pretty much the whole Torah portion and the next one and the one after that is dominated by the, by the Joseph drama. What happens to Joseph? His brothers hate him. They want to they kill him. They want to they throw him into a pit. They sell him. Right? All, all of this drama. But tonight, we're actually not going to focus on the story of Joseph. We're going we're gonna to focus on a, what, would be, what, would, what we, you and I would probably, at first glance, look at as an interruption in the story of Joseph. And that is the story of Judah and Tamar. So let's do this. I'm going to ask you a question. A second here. Okay, here's my question. Question is, who here is familiar with the story of Judah and Tamar by raise of hand? Judah and Tamar. Yes? A little bit? A little bit? Okay. So what's, what's going on? The brothers kidnap Joseph. They sell Joseph as a slave. He ends up in Egypt. And then the Torah, in middle of the Torah portion, it cuts away to another story. And it says that Joseph went down from his brothers and he went to a place and, and then a bunch of stuff happened. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to explore the story of Judah and Tamar. And then we are going to pose a question or two. And from that launching point, we are going to develop what turns out to be an incredibly powerful idea that relates to the mountain behind me, the fake mountain background behind me, and to the slope. Sorry if I uh, burst anyone's bubble. Okay, so that is, that is the, uh, hi Zaidi, that is the goal of tonight's session. We're going to explore the story of Judah and Tamar, ask a question, and from there, we are going to, um, we are going to come up with some lessons in life. Okay, so here is the story. Judah was the one, was the brother, who actually, in, he came up with the idea to sell Joseph as a slave. Right? Remember this? The brothers wanted to kill Joseph. And then they said, well, let's not kill him. Reuben said, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into a pit. And then they were going to let him, you know, die in the pit. And what does Judah say? Judah says, unmute yourself and tell me what, what does Judah say to his brothers at that point in time? Help me out here. Who's got it? Don't kill him. Why not? Why, why not don't kill him? He's our brother. Good. What else? What's the other rationale that they have? And the father. What else? What's the other? Yeah, good. What else? What's the other rationale? They said, what profit do we get if we, what profit do we get if we kill him? Let's at least sell him for some money. Right? A little Jewish business, right? If, if, what, what's the gain if we throw him into a pit? If we, if we sell him, we'll at least get some money. So they sell him. What happens next is, according to our sages, what happened next is all the brothers were very upset. Who were they upset at? Not themselves. They were upset at Judah. And they said to Judah, you were our leader. You were the one that gave a suggestion. Had you suggested that we take Joseph out of the pit 
and rescue him and return him to safety, we would have done it. But you had to be the one that told us, no, go ahead and sell him. And now he's gone. The brothers were upset at Judah. So what does Judah do? He moves away from his brothers. He moves to a new town and he starts making new relationships and he starts, he gets into a business and he starts doing something new. And this is how the Torah cuts away from the Joseph drama by telling us about something that happened with Judah. What happens is Judah gets married and he has three sons. And when it comes time for the oldest son, Er, to get married, so Judah helps his son find a wife. And who's the wife? Her name is Tamar. So Judah finds a wife for his son, Er, and, and, the, and the woman's name is Tamar. Well, Er acted immorally, and God took his life. So what happened next is Tamar is a widow. Now we know in Jewish law and in ancient law, it's not necessarily practiced today, um, certainly not by Ashkenazi communities, there's another process that's done, but in ancient times and in, 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 in biblical law, there, there is this idea called yibum, leveret marriage, which is that if a husband and wife are married they, they, and they don't have children and the husband passes away, there's a mitzvah for a family member, starting with the brother, to marry the widow. So Er dies, they don't have children, so the second son, Onan, is up for marriage. Let's take a look, and he marries Tamar. Let's take a look at this, all of this inside. I'm going to share my screen with you. And we are going to explore this story. Okay, here we go. Judah and Tamar. Okay, nice and big over here. All right, um, Paul, are you up to reading? Text number one. I do. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, named Tamar. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the eyes of God, and God put him to death. So Judah said to Onan, Come to your brother's wife and perform the rite of the Leverite, and raise up progeny for your brother. Now Onan knew that the progeny would not be his. And it came about, when he came to his brother's wife, he wasted on the ground in order not to give his seed to his brother. Now, what he did was evil in the eyes of God, and he put him to death also. Thank you. So what happens is, Er marries Tamar and Er dies. Onan marries Tamar, Onan dies. So now we have two sons of Judah that are deceased, both who married Tamar. Now, we have this notion of leveret marriage, this idea that if, again, as I mentioned before, it's called, it's in Hebrew it's called yibum. Um, if the husband passes away without children, the brother or, or another male relative can marry her and kind of continue the legacy. Let's take a look at, at this law in Torah. Later on in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, later on in the book of Numbers, we find this law specified. Mike, please read text number two. If brothers reside together, and one of them dies having no son, the dead man's wife shall not marry an outsider. Rather, her husband's brother shall be intimate with her, making her a wife for himself, thus performing the obligation of a husband's brother with her. And it will be that the eldest brother, who performs the Leverite marriage, if she can bear, will succeed in the name of his deceased brother, so that his, the deceased brother's, name shall not be obliterated from Israel. Thank you. So this is, this is uh, the text again from the Torah, from Deuteronomy, uh, the final book of the Torah. We're now in the first book. This is all the way at the end of Torah. talks about this mitzvah, and it says essentially that it's ideal. Look, no one, the Torah never forces anybody to marry anybody. That's for sure. The Torah says it's ideal. The ideal scenario is if the brother marries the widow. Why? Because that will help, that will help, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, carry on the name of the deceased husband. How does it carry on his name? By the way, there are commentaries, sorry, the Talmud discusses, ask the question, does it mean that when the husband, sorry, when the brother marries the widow 
and they have a child, that you have to name the child after the deceased brother? The answer is no. When it talks about this idea of succeeding the name of his deceased brother, it doesn't mean literally you have to name him after, let's say they have a son, you have to name the son after the, the brother who passed away. It just means in general, it's the family, it's the mishpacha, it's, you know, oh, you know, this person passed away, but the brother married her, now they have children, and it's carrying on the spirit of the, 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 the original husband who is now deceased. It's different if she goes and marries someone else, right? Because that doesn't really bring any attribution back to her first husband who died. But if it's the family, if it's the mishpacha, if it's the brother, there you go. That would be, that would be a way to, to kind of carry on the legacy of the deceased. All right, let me check in and make sure that makes sense so far. Oops, hold on one second. All right. Makes sense? Leverett marriage? Yes? Okay, again, I want to give you the Hebrew term. It's called yibum. Yibum. By the way, the process by which that potential marriage is broken is called chalitza. So if the brother says, I don't want to do it. I don't want to marry her. Or if the widow says, I don't want to marry that guy. If either party refuses, there's a process called chalitza. And chalitza is essentially breaking that potential marriage that's lying in wait. Or that is, yeah, that potential marriage that's ready to go if the parties agree. So if they agree, it's called yibum, and they get married. If they, if, if they don't want, chalitza breaks that bond. Yibum, chalitza. That's it. So what happened is, er married Tamar, he died. So, Onan, you married Tamar, he dies. Remember, there were three sons. The last one's name is Shela. So what happens? So Shela officially is up for marriage. Um, Karen's asking a good question. Karen in the chat asked, is that still a practice in certain Orthodox um, communities or observances? Here's the answer. In some Sephardic communities, it's still done. In most Ashkenazic communities, it's not put into practice. The default is chalitza. Things are a little bit complicated and could be complicated. So the idea is, in theory, it might be good, but in practice, it might be complicated. So in modern times, charedim, um, no, it's not about, it's not about um, you know, orthodox or whatever. It's, it's just, it's not usually done. It could be done. It's not usually done. Usually chalitza is done by default nowadays. Um, but again, in certain Sephardic communities, oh, Sephardic Haredim, yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah, in certain communities, they, they, they sometimes do it. All right. It's not practical, really, necessarily. The, the man could be married already, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, and, and, and although in biblical law, the man could have, the, the brother, you know, a man could have more than one wife, but rabbinic law, that's outlawed exactly, and so it might not be practical. Maybe there's no brother. Although then again, the whole thing doesn't begin. But it's typically not, not a thing that's done nowadays, but it's officially a thing. And, and look, we could get into the sociological and historical concepts behind it. There was certainly a benefit for the deceased brother and the family. There's certainly a benefit for um, the widow who might, she also might have um, a, a challenge finding another husband. But if it's in the family, it might be a little bit easier. It really benefits both sides. So if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Okay. Um, so now, but now again, so first brother passes away. Second brother takes over. He passes away. Now there's a third brother. And what does Judah say? What does the dad say? Judah is the dad here. Judah says, let's wait. <laughs> let's, not, let's not jump into anything too fast over here. So look, look at what this is. I got to share this with you. Let me share this text with you. This is 3A. Let me, let me fast forward a little bit. Um, this is where he is brushing Tamar off. Take a look at 3A. You know what? Um, Donna Bogatin, please read text 3A right here. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain as a widow in your father's house until my son... Shayla grows up, for he said, lest he too die like his brothers. So Tamar went and she remained in her father's house. So he tells her, wait until my youngest son 
the third, last, final son grows up. But for he said to himself, lest he too die like his brothers. In other words, the Torah is revealing what his intention was. A little deception here. He tells her he's not ready yet. What he means is it's never going to happen. That's literally what the Torah is telling us. Judah tells Tamar, wait on him. And in his heart, he's saying, not going to happen. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not green lighting this. So what does she do? She takes him at, her, at his word. Tamar goes and she goes to her father's house. Um, let's take a look at what Rashi says. You know what, Donna, please continue right here. Rashi explains what I just said. He dismissed her with a straw, with a lame excuse, for he did not intend to marry her to Shela, for he said, lest he too die, i.e., this is a woman whose husband is presumably dying. In other words, something about her. That's what he believed. He wasn't right. It was his sons that acted in a negative way, in an evil way, in the eyes of God. But he didn't know that. He didn't see it. Maybe he had a blind spot for it, whatever it is. Either way, he blamed her. So he said, yeah, he made an excuse. He's not ready. But his intention was, no, not going to happen. She is a muhzeket. She is a woman who is, already has established, chazaka, has an established pattern of husbands dying young. Why would I do this a third time? I lost two sons already. That was his rationale. Now, I need to point out something interesting. I, I love the fact that even Rashi uses the idea of a straw, and he uses straw as a bad argument. You ever hear like a straw man argument almost? Like straw, it's an like, it's expression that's used, right? Straw man argument. It's kind of like what he's saying. He's, he's giving an argument that doesn't really hold up. It's, uh, it's fake. It's flimsy. He says, it's, it's a misdirection. He says, um, oh, my son's not ready. That's not what he means. That's what he meant is, I'm not, you're not going to marry any more of my children because I don't want them to die. Okay, um, you should know that there is a law in Maimonides that talks about this. Maimonides says, and we have this in text 4, this idea that um, if two husbands die on, on a woman, you know, back to back, then maybe she shouldn't marry a third time. If she does, it's fine. But, you know, maybe we, we, should, you know, we should think twice about it. Anyway, that was Judah's intention. What happens next is, is the following. Let me stop sharing so I can look at you while I speak to you. Okay, so what happens next is like this. Tamar at some point realizes that he's not getting back to her, right? It's like, no, don't call me, we'll call you. You know that one? So he said, he, Tamar realizes at a certain point that there's no movement here. And um, it's not going to happen. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, here's what's very important. Tamar had some sort of vision, prophecy, intuition. She knew somehow that she must have children from this family. And if it's not the first two brothers, it would be the third brother. And if it's not any of the sons, then let it be the father, Judah himself. At that point in time, I need to mention, Judah's wife, the mother of these three sons, had passed away. So Judah was himself a widower. So Judah is a widower. Tamar is the widow. Tamar is not being allowed to marry the youngest son, Shelah. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She hears that Judah is traveling to a place called Timnah. Why is he traveling to Timnah? To oversee some sheep shearing action, something with the flocks. And he's going on location to, to observe. She hears about his travel plans. She decides to confront him on the way in a very interesting way. I am going to, I'm going to share my screen with you once again. Um, here we go. Sharing screen. Take a look. This is going to be text. Hold on. I, I skipped the text. Text 5A. Okay. Here we go. Let's see. Who are we going to ask to read? Oh, Sarah. Are you open to reading? Uh huh. Yes. Okay, great, thank you. Many days passed, and Shua's daughter, 
Judah's wife died, and Judah was consoled. And he went up to watch over his sheep shearers, he and Hira, his Adulamite friend, to Timnah. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garb, covered her head with a veil, and covered her face, and she sat down at the crossroads that were on the way to Timnah, where she saw that Shelah had grown up, but as for her, she was not given to him for a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she covered her face. So he turned aside toward her to the road, and he said, Get ready now, I will come to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you should come to me? And he said, I will send a kid from the herd. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. So he said, What is the pledge that I should give you? And she said, Your signet, your cloak, and the staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he came to her, and she conceived his likeness. Then she arose and went away, and she took off her veil, and she donned her widow's garb. Thank you. All right, so this is it's a very, very interesting story. So she basically finds out that he's traveling. As I said, she's traveling up to Timnah. So she places herself at the crossroads on the way to Timnah while he's traveling to Timnah. And he thinks, so he, he assumes her to be someone who's, uh, who's, who's there on a regular basis by the crossroads. And so he says, uh, what would it take to, to have an arrangement, to have um, a meeting, to arrange a meeting with you? And she says, uh, sorry, and he says, um, I'm sorry, she asks, what will you give me? He says, a kid from the herd. She says, give me a collateral, give me a pledge. And he gives her the signet ring the cloak, and the staff. And they did their thing, and she became pregnant. Well, I mean, that was only discovered later, obviously, but she conceives at that moment, and he goes off on his way, and she goes off on her way, and she goes back home and re redons her widow's garb. All right, that is the story. But if you think this is interesting, honestly, the drama is kind of just beginning, because what happens next is, Stop sharing so I can see all of you again. What happens... Hold on, before I continue, what happens next? Is, this, is the timeline of the story making sense? Thumbs up if it's making sense. Yes? Story makes sense? Perfect. Okay. So what happens next is, well, Judah promised her a goat, right? He promised her a kid goat. So he goes home and he sends with his assistant the goat to meet the woman to give her... He didn't know it was Tamar to give her the goat and take back his ring, cloak, and staff. Well, he shows up. The messenger goes to the same crossroads that she was at. He's looking around. No Tamar. Asks the locals, hey, where's the lady that was here? No idea. There's no one here. We didn't see anybody, and there's never anyone here. He goes back to Judah. I, I couldn't find her, and no one has any idea what you're talking about. Are you sure this happened? He says, look, it is what it is. I'm not going to start uh, publishing in the classifieds. Are you the woman that I met at the crossroads on the way to Timnah? If so, I have your goat. Can you please give me back my signet ring? Signed, Judah. That's not what he was doing. He says at that point, if you can't find her, done. Forget about it. Let's keep it on the down low. I have to get a new signet ring, a new cloak, and a new staff. All right, what are you going to do? But at least I get my goat. Right? So far, so good? All right. So what happens next? A few months pass. Judah forgets about the whole incident. Judah, you know, he did his thing and that's it. Three months later, the word arrives to Judah. Your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant. Ooh, scandal. She was supposed to be waiting for Shayla and, and not marrying anybody else, or not being with anybody else, not being, certainly not being promiscuous. And now, uh-oh, She's pregnant, and oh, look who's joining us on the slopes. Our favorite Torah studies friend. Oh, Riva, say hi. There you go. Riva, look, we're on the mountain. Isn't that nice? There you go. Okay. Show everybody your beautiful dress. Yes. Okay. 
Back to the story. So what happens is that three months later, the word comes to Judah. Tamar's pregnant. Scandal. He says, that's it. Take her away and put her to death. That was... I need to mention... Oh yeah, your arm disappears because it's like a fake background. So I need to mention that in those days, I'm just giving you the, the, the background information. In those days, it was agreed upon by society in response to the punishment of the flood and Sodom, it was established by society then that any promiscuous activity would be meted out with strict punishment. Um, and I get it. In this story, Judah was acting also in a way that, you know, could be questioned. But the word gets back to Judah about Tamar, and he says, death penalty, that there was a capital crime in those times, in those days, for this type, of, this type of behavior. So, they're about to execute her. When, at the last minute, she pulls out, she pulls out the ring, the cloak, and the staff. You with me? Drama. Let's read it inside. Let's read this inside. I'm sharing my screen because sharing is... What is sharing? Caring. That's right. Okay. Let's jump into text 5B. Here we go. All right. Let's see who is going to do the dramatic conclusion. Steve Horowitz, are you up to it? All right, don't forget to unmute and take this story home, please. And Judah sent the kid by the hand of the Adolamite friend to take the pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So he asked the people of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who was at the crossroads on the way? And they said, No harlot was here. So he returned to Judah and he said, uh, I have not found her. And the people of the place also said, No harlot was here. So Judah said, Let her take them from herself, lest we become a laughingstock. Behold, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Uh, now it came about, after nearly three months, it was told to Judah, saying, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is pregnant from harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. She was taken out, and she, was sent and she sent word to her father-in-law, saying, From the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please recognize whose signet ring, cloak, and staff are these. Then Judah recognized them, and he said, She is right. It is from me, because I did not give her to my son, Shelah. But he no longer continued to be intimate with her. Thank you. That is the end of the story. Well, the end of the story is she gives birth to twins. We'll get to that in a second, but that's the end of the drama. So to kind of recap that last bit of the story, which I did not share. So essentially like this, they're taking out Tamar for capital punishment. As I said, that's the way it was done in those times. And she's passing, imagine this, she's passing by his house on the way to the execution. And she says, please stop for a moment and let me just drop off a package by my father-in-law, by Judah. And she says, delivery for Judah. And Judah opens up the package. And there he sees the signet ring, the cloak, and the staff. And you can imagine, Judah had a choice at that moment. What was Judah's choice? Judah could have said, I'm going back to sleep. Let it, let it be done. No one else knows. That's it. And, 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 and let's happen. Whatever happens, happens. No. He said, Todd come many. She's righteous. She's more righteous than I am. She's right. It's from me that, that she's pregnant. He cops to it. And obviously, that uh, execution or whatever was, was stopped immediately. And, and that's it. By the way, it says he was no longer intimate with her. Rashi cites a second interpretation that says he did not stop being intimate with her. In other words, he did continue to be intimate with her, i.e. he married her, etc. So different, two different opinions. Either way... She, her life was saved. She gives birth to twins. Their names are Peretz and Zarach. Peretz is the great, 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 whatever, grandfather of King David, who is of the, Davidic, the founder, obviously, of the Davidic dynasty, from which Mashiach comes. The ancestor of Mashiach is born 
from this very strange union. All right, so that's the story. Any questions on the story? That's how the story ends. Judah, three sons, married, uh, the oldest one marries Tamar, first one dies, second one marries her, second one dies, third one doesn't let him marry her. She disguises herself, is intimate with Judah, gets pregnant, she is arrested, about to be applied capital punishment. She says, it, it's, it's, I got pregnant from the guy who gave me this. He admit, Judah admits, stops the execution, and they live happily ever after. Make sense? Any questions on the story? There's lots of questions. Like one obvious one is <clears throat> that she gave birth to somebody with, who was the forerunner of Mashiach. So the question would be, it's a strange way that that forerunner appeared in the world. Excellent. Excellent question. Good. Good. Beautiful. Good question. This, we're not going to focus on that tonight, so I'll just give you a quick, a quick response, which is not going to do justice to the question because it's a really good question. Um, sometimes, as Chassidah says and Kabbalah says, when, it, when you're dealing with a big light, it has to be smuggled into the world in a, um, in a, um, obs- in a, in a hidden package, right? It has to come into, the big light has to come into the world in a container that doesn't look so, doesn't look so holy, so that it doesn't get stopped at the checkpoint of, uh, you know, of coming into the world. So, sometimes the greatest light comes in the most mysterious of ways. That, this would definitely be an example of that. But excellent question. What any other questions on the story that we have so far? Yes, Bev, don't forget to unmute yourself. Okay, so this is like off of the thing, but it, at the very beginning it says Judah was consoled. Hmm. And I don't know why it says that, because, I mean, it's, I, I, it, and if you think of when, Yaakov, when Isaac took Rebecca and Rebecca came and consoled him. So right. I don't I know it's not like mainstream of what we're talking about, but it just—I just—it is an interesting—it is an interesting word. I'm—I'm I'm looking at what you're referring to, text five a. It says, "Judah's wife died, and Judah was consoled, and he went up to watch over his sheep shares." So it just throws in that line that he was vayinachim Yehuda. Yehuda was consoled, but it does not mention how, what, where, when. It just talks about him going to observe the sheep sharing process. Um, it's a good question. I'm sure the commentaries discuss it. I don't have a good. I, I don't have a. I don't have a good response for you right now. I can, after the class, if you remind me, I don't mind quickly running over to my shelf, pulling out the, the book of commentaries and seeing what we can find out. If you can remind me, but it's a good. It's a good, very good observation. I know it's like off of the track. Of yeah. No. It's every, everything's on the track. We're on the slopes. Everything. Everything is legit. Um, okay. Any other questions on this so far? No? Okay. All right. Again, at any point, you can always jump in. Even if I'm not asking four questions, you can always ask a question if you have it. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to focus on one... One second, Reeves. I want to focus on one word in the story. Okay? One word in the story. Because, and, and Well, we're going to focus on one word, but in, in order to get to that one word... I want to talk about the place that this drama with Tamar happened. Who can remember by memory? If you have a book, no peeking. Who can tell me by memory what was the name of the place where Judah was going up toward that Tamar met him at the crossroads? Unmute yourself and jump right in. Timna, excellent. Crossroads to Timna. Cross, excellent. He was going to Timna. She met him at the crossroads on the way. So the place was Timna. This is not the only time that the place called Timna is mentioned in Scripture. Where else is Timna mentioned in Scripture, you might ask? In the book of Judges. In the book of Shoftim. In, in, in reference to none other than Samson. You remember mighty Samson? Shimshon Hagibar. You remember mighty Samson? Yeah? Are you mighty Samson? Right? She can make the screen disappear. Right? Mighty Samson, who was the strong, 
protector of the Jewish people in the time, early days, early years of their settling the land of Israel. Let me share with you, oh, oh, one second before I share this with you. Here are my instructions. You ready? Pay attention to how Timna is described and tell me, if you can remember this by memory, the discrepancy between the way Timna is described in Shoftim, the book of Judges, versus the way it's described in reference to the story of Judah. You understand my question? Timna is mentioned twice in the Judah story, in the Samson story. There's a difference to how they're referenced. Tell me the difference and ask the question, if you can. That's my challenge. That's my request. I'm going to share my screen. Steve's got it. He's already pointing. But hold on, before you get there, let's... Um, let us, let us, let me share text number six. All right. This is, uh, this is the story of Samson. Donna, Donna H., please take it away, Samson. And Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and he told his father and mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So now take her to me for a wife. And his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brothers and among all my people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Take her for me because she is pleasing in my eyes. Very interesting story, by the way. Samson, of course, was the mighty warrior, as I mentioned before. But he had a thing. He had a thing. He married a Philistine. He wanted to marry this Philistine woman. His parents are like, why? There are no good Jewish girls. He says, no, I really want to marry her. He ends up marrying her. Um, listen, this is not Delilah. Right, Samson, you know, Delilah, the one who cut the hair and he lost all of his strength. You know the story? I hope I'm not giving away too much from the story. Right, so eventually he marries. That's, there was another Philistine girl. He had a thing, listen, he had a thing and ultimately it caused his downfall. He lost his strength and he, he died in a final epic act of revenge. But either way, the point is that Timnah is mentioned here. That's really why we're quoting this for this opening line. Somebody tell me, I'm stopping to share. Somebody tell me the difference in how Timnah is described in this text versus the way it was described in Judah's text. Who's got it? Who's got it? Unmute yourself if you got it. Judah went up to Timnah, but he went down to Timnah. Oh. But in the Judah story, it says that Judah went up to Timnah. He went up, and Tamar heard that he was coming up to Timnah. And in the Samson story, it says that Samson went down to Timnah. Now, here's the point. They were both in Israel when they were headed to Timnah. Judah lived in Israel and Canaan when he went to Timnah, and it said he was going up to Timnah. Well, Samson also lived in Israel, and it said he was going down to Timnah. So which one is it? Was Timnah at the top of a mountain or at the bottom of the mountain? Ah, you see where I'm going with this. Is Timnah at the top? Revi, see the mountain? You love it. Is Timnah at the top? Get in the frame. Say hi. Woo. Is he at the top of the mountain or the bottom? Not he. Is Timnah at the top or the bottom? Are you going up to Timnah or down to Timnah? None up, other. Up. Reva says up. Okay. None other than. <laughs> she's choosing one. None other than the Talmud itself. By the way, we started a brand new Talmud course last night. If you're not in it, jump in it. Jump in on it. It's awesome. None other than the Talmud itself explores this question. The Talmud asks the discrepancy. What do you think the Talmud's here for? The Talmud notices these contradictions, notices discrepancies, and says... Let's explore. Let's explain. So here we go. Um, here, whoa, what's going on here? Here we, give me a second. I'm opening up too many windows. The Talmud, what window? windows or windows, you know. Okay. The Talmud says, Azoi, Tractate Sota Tene, Text 7. Text. All right, let's see. Who are we going to ask? Oh, Fred. Fred, where are you? Are you up to reading? Yes, you're unmuted. Text 7, the verse states, please. The verse states, And Samson went down to Timnah. 
but a different birth state. Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timna. So which one is it? Rabbi Elazar said, in the case of Samson, who was disgraced there, the verse speaks of a descent. In the case of Judah, who became spiritually uplifted there, the verse speaks of an ascent. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani said, there were two places called Timna. One was reached by traveling downward and the other by traveling upward. Rav Papa said, there was only one place called Timna, and it was located on a mountain slope. Coming from one direction, one had to travel downward. Coming from the other direction, one had to travel upward, like Verdonia, Bay Bari, and the market of Naresh. Okay, so here we go. Thank you, Fred. Did everyone catch that? Three answers in the Talmud? The Talmud poses a contradiction. One verse says you go up to Timna. The other one says you go down to Timna. So answer number one. What's answer number one? Someone tell me what answer number one is. What's answer? What's the first answer? Hold on, I didn't hear. I, I, I couldn't catch that. What's the first answer? Simpson was going to be disgraced, so he went down. Ah, in other words... Ah, good. It's not about location. It's not, a, it's not a geographical description of up and down. The first answer takes up and down out of its literal understanding. It says that you're not going physically up or down to Timnah. It means, in one case, it was an ascent, and the other case, it was a descent. So when it comes to, to um, Samson, he met his downfall. Once he got involved in the Philistine young ladies, that was the beginning of the end. So that was the beginning of his downfall. Whereas Judah, Judah it meet, it, it, it can, uh, um, is intimate with Tamar and gives birth to two sons and they become the progenitors of King David and Mashiach. That was an ascent. So one went up and one went down. That's, yeah. But Judah, Judah goes and he has sex with a harlot. I mean, what's I was, was going to ask that question also, but hold on, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Good question. I was going to ask that, that question also, but before you ask the question, let's, let's go through all three answers. So answer number one is up and down is not geographic or ge geographical. It's, um, it's in spiritual degree. One is ascending and one is descending. W wonderful. The second answer is probably my favorite because it's so practical. It's like Portland. Yeah. Where's Portland. Portland what? Portland is... Oh, there's two Portlands. Aha, you're on to me, right? So Portland, there's two Portlands. Is it Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine? In other words, in other words, if you're in... Uh, let's see if I get my geography right. If you are in St. Louis, Missouri, yeah, is Portland east or west? Northwest. Yes. It's both. Northwest also, right? It's, is it north or west? It's both. Sorry, not north. West or east? It's both, right? Maybe better one would be uh, Chicago. I don't know. That's where Nesson is. You're right. Nice. She's on, she's on the game here. She gets it. Right, Reeves? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, so if you're in Chicago, is it east or west? Or wherever you are, is it east or west in the middle of the country? So Portland, Oregon is west. Portland, Maine is east. That's the way it works. So... What's the point? There are two Timnas. One Timna was up and one Timna was down. Very practical answer. Not much you can do with that other than saying, all right, you got me. Next answer, the final answer is, Adina Malka, go ahead. Wait, wait, you got you to gotta unmute. My lip reading is not where it needs to be. You got it? Yes. Yeah, I thought that... Um uh, Timna that Judah uh, went up to Timna because he was spiritually uplifted because he owned up that that he was with the prostitute. He could have, like you said, just let it slide, you know, no one will know. But he owned up to it, and that's why I thought he went up. That's the answer that I was going to give. So you got listen, you you both of you. I mean, this is you're you're playing out. Or Paul's asking the question, and Dina Malka's giving my answer. You guys, you guys are on this, but hold, hold on on, that for, on the analysis first. Let me, let's just go through the answers. So answer number one is one went up, one went down spiritually. Hey, Shia. Second answer is 
There are two timnas. One was up, one was down geographically. Third answer is also geographic. But no, there was one timna. But timna was in middle of the slope. It was in the middle of the slope. So if you were at the bottom, you had to go up to timna. And if you were at the top, you had to go down to timna. Are you with me? Are you with me? So Judah was at the bottom. He went up to Timna. Tum, um, Samson was at the top. He went down to Timna. Same Timna, but you can come at it from different directions. Three answers in the Talmud. It's so Talmud. It's so like straight up Talmud. You have a contradiction in the verses, and you got three answers, each one with a different spin. But let's analyze, as we just did, the, well, well, as, as was mentioned, um, in our discussion a moment ago, let's, let's, let's explore the first answer that says that, well, while Samson was descending spiritually and his downfall was, was imminent, um, Judah was rising to the spiritual heights. That's why it says he went up to Timnah. And, and, and Paul's question is a very good question, and that is, what kind of going up? What kind of ascent? Are you kidding me? He's going, he's, he's meeting with, with this woman in this crossroads. He doesn't know it's Tamar. He thinks it, right? And you're telling me that's an ascent? So, as Adina Malka mentioned, there's, there, I mentioned before that, well, it, it yielded two sons, and David, and Mashiach. All right, but there's also more. Ah, uh, he went up spiritually because Tamar was the cause for spiritual ascent. Good. There's also this notion that Tamar did something heroic, and Judah did something heroic. In other words, notwithstanding the, um, the, the, hold on, one second. Can you please close this? Notwithstanding the, um, the questionable status of this whole, of this whole scenario, um, we might still say that there were acts of uh, spiritual bravery being performed here. I'm going to share my screen with you, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a moment. Actually, right now, I'm going to read some, some text quickly. Here's what the Talmud says about Tamar's um, uh, sensitivity, or I don't know, sensitivity. You, you'll see what I mean. The verse states, she sent word to her father-in-law saying, from the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. The Talmud asked the question, but let her simply tell him explicitly that she was carrying his child. Why did she allude to it? Send him the package of the, of the items. Why didn't she just say, I am pregnant from Judah? Rav Zutra Bar said in the name of Rav, and some say Rav Chana Bar Bizna said in the name of Rav Shimon Chasida, and some say Rav Yochanan said in the name of Rav Shimon Ben Yochai. Everyone wanted in on this idea. You see how many rabbis are in on this? Yeah, everyone wanted to take, take uh, credit for it, or everyone was giving attribution for this one. And what's the quote? It's better for a person to cast himself into a fiery furnace than to embarrass another person in public. From where do we learn this? From Tamar. Tamar was willing to go into the fire, but not publicly shame Jacob. And you might say, I disagree. She should have outed Jacob, sorry, um, Judah. She should have outed him. What, she should give up her own life because this guy does something wrong. This guy gets her pregnant, so she should take the heat. The bottom line is, she was willing to allow herself to be thrown into the, into the fiery furnace rather than embarrass someone publicly, let alone you and I who have the choice whether to embarrass somebody publicly. We should never make that choice to embarrass somebody in the presence of others. That's what the Talmud learns. So is that an ascent? 100%. On, that, on this level, she acted very nobly. The same thing is true with, Ju with, with Judah as well. Here we go. The Talmud also says, Judah admitted his deed with Tamar and was not embarrassed to do so. What became of him, he inherited the life of the world to come. Reuben admitted his sin, interfering with his father's marital life, and was not embarrassed. Now, who caused Reuben to admit his error? It was Judah. Judah was the first one to say, I was wrong. And from then on, people learned how to say, I was wrong. I am sorry. It was my mistake. It was my error. Judah never said, it's not my fault, she killed my sons, I was in a moment of weakness, I was looking to be comforted after the death of my wife. He never spun it, he never excused it, he never deflected it, he never, he never pointed other fingers at other people, he owned it 100%. So yes, the action was questionable, but in the aftermath of the action, she acted nobly, teaching us a lesson, and he also acted in a noble fashion, also teaching us a lesson. On that level, we could say that it was an ascent. But here's the interesting thing as I stop sharing this and we get back to our conversation. Here's the interesting thing. Rashi, who is the most basic Torah commentary, Rashi does not quote 
this answer. Rashi does not quote the first answer of the Talmud. The question is, why not? The, and, right, Rashi, the Talmud gives three answers. Rashi in his commentary only cites one. Spoiler alert, it's the third. The question is, the Rebbe asked this question, why doesn't, I, the first answer is so, so beautiful, it's going up in, 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 in spirituality, going down in spirituality, in ascent, the descent, Samson and Judah, why doesn't Rashi cite the first answer? The Rebbe explains that Rashi couldn't give the first answer because the first answer doesn't make sense in the verses. You know why? Because the verse says that this fellow told Tamar that he was going up to Timnah. That's the context. Are you with me in what I just said? I'm going to say it again. The context of up to Timnah in the Torah is used in reference to a person who told Tamar, hey, your father is going up to Timnah. How would he know that it's going to yield a spiritual ascent. If the Torah is telling us, the narrator of Torah is telling us that he went up to Timnah, you could say the Torah's um, a pre-shadowing or pre-whatever. Um, Torah is foreshadowing this notion that it's going to be for an ascent. So hang with the story, it's going to get, it's going to get better. But it's not the narrator of Torah that's saying this. It's a person being quoted. It's this person who says to Tamar, hey, your father is going up to Timnah. Why would he say up if it was really down? So it must mean that it must be geographically up or geographically down, which is why Rashi cites the third answer. Let me share with you the Rebbe's insight on this, and hopefully this will be clear if it's not already clear. Here we go. Oh, I love this little caption, the town Yenta. So what is the town Yenta? You know, the Yenta is the gossiper, the one who tells everybody the news. So what is it? So here we go. Our verse's statement, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah, is spoken in the second person, the Rebbe says. In other words, these were merely the words spoken to Tamar by one of the local townspeople. Surely when he told Tamar that Judah was going up to Timnah, the, that individual could not have been referring to Judah's future spiritual advancement, for he wouldn't have known about it. If so, the question or verse remains. Why does the individual state that Judah went up to Timnah? If Timnah was down, as we see in the Samson verse, so why does this guy say that he went up to Timnah? Is it up? Or is it down? So Rashi gives the answer that he gives. Rashi gives the third answer. Take a look at, I'm going to read the text now. Text 11, look at this, is going up to Timnah. Rashi says, when it comes to Samson, however, the verse states, and Samson went down to Timnah. This apparent, the apparent contradiction can be resolved as follows. This is Rashi's answer. Timnah was situated on a mountain slope. So they would go up to it from here and go down to it. From there, Rashi in his commentary on Chumash, in his commentary on Torah, cites only one of the three answers of the Talmud. Rashi, of course, is not writing up his own ideas. He's taking it from classic sources, and he's holding on to the third answer, that Timnah was located in the middle of a mountain slope, on the slopes, middle of the slope, right there. And so if you were down, you were going up. And if you were up, you were going down. That's where Timnah was. Timnah was in the middle. The Rebbe says, from this we can learn an incredible lesson about life. Because life is lived on the slopes. Listen, I'm, I'm leaning hard into this analogy of mountains and slopes. And, and it's only going to get more from here. We all live on the slopes. This may be Whistler. Is it Whistler? No, it's in Wyoming. What's the mountain? No, I don't know what it is. Whatever. Anyway, wherever this is. I downloaded a few different ones. One of them was Wyoming. I don't think it was this one, though. What I have to look back at the website that I got it from. Here's the point. Here's the point. Life is lived on the slopes, the rabbi says. What that means is life is an uphill battle. And you know what that means? If we're not climbing, if we're not actively advancing, then we are backsliding. You are on an icy mountain, and you have skis that are very polished and waxed on your feet. And if you're not going up, my friends, you are going down. You want to get, I'll give you another example. There, life is like a downward escalator. It's going down. If you're standing still, guess where you're going? You are going down also because the gravity, the gravitational pull of life is downward. The only way to maintain position, let alone advance, is by constantly growing. Without growth, it's not holding steady, it's receding. 
Because life comes at us with a force. Life moves at us with an energy. If we don't push back, we're swept backwards. I want to share with you. Take a look at text 12b. So beautiful. So beautiful. I'm going to share the Rebbe's words on this. Lessons from Timnah, the Slope City. Here we go, 12b. Religious experience is likened to climbing a mountain. We know that when climbing a mountain, one cannot stop in the middle of the incline. Doing so would almost certainly cause him to slip and fall. Instead, one must continue climbing without stopping. The same is true of climbing the mountain of God. One must constantly continue upward, not just to reach higher, but also even more essentially to avoid falling. In other words, one mustn't suffice with his current spiritual achievements because staying put without climbing higher would result in a spiritual decline. So the big idea of today's class is that life, like Timnah, is lived in the middle of the slopes. And the question is, which direction are we going? There's no stopping in the middle. Which direction are you going? Are you going up? To Timnah? Are you going down to Timnah? Are you climbing up the mountain? Are you sliding down the mountain? There's no such thing as holding steady. Life does not hold steady. Either it's up or it's down. There's no in between. I want to give you, I want to conclude this idea with a powerful Hanukkah parallel. This is going to blow your mind. Everyone knows that the way we observe Hanukkah, which is tomorrow night, Everyone knows that you have a candelabra. Uh, where are my volunteers? Um, to bring me a menorah. So everyone knows, how do you light the menorah? You light one candle the first night, two the second night, three the third night, four the fourth night, five the fifth night, six the sixth night, seven the seventh night, the final night of Hanukkah, night number eight. All lights are lit on the candelabra, on the menorah. You have eight candles plus a shamash plus a helper candle. You have eight candles. But Shia, can you bring me a menorah? Thank you. Whichever. Okay. So everyone knows this. However, what you might not know is the Talmud says that's like ultra, ultra from. That's like super, super observant. Because the basic mitzvah is to light one candle in the house all eight days. Light one candle the first night. Oh, beautiful. Good choice. Oh, no, the menorah is disappearing. Help save the menorah. Okay, if I hold it at the right angle, you can make out that it's actually a menorah, not a, um, some weird glitch in the matrix. Okay, this is a menorah. Right, one, two, three, four, shamash, five, six, seven, eight. However, the Talmud says, Tracted Shabbat, that to do the mitzvah, all you need to do is light one candle in your house. The first night and the second night, one candle. The third night, one candle. Just light one candle. How many? One. For the whole household, yes. The Talmud says, if you want to be really religious, really observant, you light every, everyone in the family lights one candle. So if you have a, a household of two, Two candles the first night, two the second night, two the third night, two the fourth night, etc. If you have a family of four, four each night. But mahadrin mina mahadrin, the greatest form of observance, the, the best of the best, the creme de la creme. Who said I didn't speak French? Yeah? Creme de la creme. I may have pronounced that not correctly, is to light. One candle the first night, and to increase subsequently every single night. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And many have the custom that every member of the household lights their own candelabra following the same increasing pattern. And that's how we do it. That's the highest level. By the way, I would say the vast, vast, vast majority of Jews don't even know about another way to do it. Right? We only know the most uh, observant way to do it. Who lights one candle every night? Never heard of that, right? Who knows? Who's heard of that? What, 
which Judaica store in the world, in no matter which denomination synagogue, have you ever heard sell, selling a menorah with one candle? Never in the history of Judaica stores. Never. I dare you to find me a Chanukiah with one candle to be just the basic requirement. Never happened. Never. Everyone does it the highest level. Baruch Hashem. However, I want to give you a scenario. Let's say, and, and just follow, follow the logic for a second. Let's say you started off the normal way, the highest way, which mahajra min mahajra, the best of the best, which means you lit one candle the first night, two the second night, three the third night, comes, light num comes night number four, and you light three again. Listen to this. One, two, three, three. Now, you might be wondering, why would you do that? I don't know. I, I'm giving you a scenario. One, two, three, three. Is it kosher? Sure. Is it the best of the best? No. You were doing the best of the best. One, two, three. You were at the top tier observance, but then when you lit three again, you dropped down, even though you lit the same amount of candles. Because when you hold steady, because when you hold steady and just maintain it, it's actually a descent. Are you with me on what I just said? You, here's an example of Hanukkah where you didn't diminish your light. You held steady. You were at three and you're still at three. And you know what? You went down because you held steady. Because in life, you have to increase or else you're going down. I mean, I don't mean like you're going down. That sounded too, too, uh, too like threatening. No, but in life, either we're going up or we're going down. There's no such thing as holding steady. Just think about Hanukkah. Night number four, and you lay three again, you've dropped down a level of performance of the mitzvah. And that's a message in life, certainly in everything. I mean, speak to someone in business, they'll tell you the same thing about business, but honestly, this is not a class on business, this is a class on spiritual growth and, and, and our connection with Hashem, with God. And so the message, the spiritual message for tonight is, if you've been doing a mitzvah, great, but don't just keep on doing it. Do it better tomorrow than you did it today. If you're studying Torah, increase in Torah study. Giving tzedakah, increase in giving tzedakah. Whatever mitzvah you're doing, do it with greater passion, greater intensity, greater focus, greater kavana, intentionality, whatever it is. Greater frequency. Um, whatever it is, increase. Mailin bakodesh. Always increase when it comes to matters of holiness. Otherwise, it's considered a downgrade. Holding steady is actually considered to be a downgrade. This is the message of Hanukkah. This is the message of our Torah portion. Timna is on the slopes. You're either going up or you're going down, but you're definitely not holding steady. Let us all take the message and inspiration of this Torah portion and Hanukkah and continue to climb ever higher. And when we do so, let us be blessed with the most incredible blessings of good health and wealth and happiness and only, only the greatest blessings. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved Torah on the slopes with you. And listen, one day, when we're PC, that's post-corona, maybe we'll even do a real slope, Torah, slope and study. You know, please God, one day we'll get back to uh, some slopes and study. All right, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I will stay on to answer questions, to have a schmooze. Um, but if you got to go, Laila Tov, don't forget, tomorrow night is Hanukkah. Make sure you have all your Hanukkah gear. If you need any help with that, let me know. We have Hanukkah gear that's available um, for the community. And if you know somebody that needs it, to share with the community 100%. We have uh, materials, supplies. Saturday night, special event. Inside Israel's Iron Dome, Modern Miracles with the Chief Engineer of the Iron Dome, Israeli Missile Defense System. He's going to speak about the, the engineering behind the Iron Dome and also the miracles behind the Iron Dome. And uh, it will be a beautiful um, um, complement to our celebration of Hanukkah, Saturday night, Hanukkah, Saturday night, which is also a celebration, of course, of Hashem's great miracles in saving Israel and the Jewish people. So join us Saturday night. There's still 
food available. If you want to get in, get in on it, we don't have much left. Today was officially the deadline, but you know, I know the people that know the people. We can try to still hook you up. Either way, even without the food, it's, 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 uh, it's going to be an incredible evening. Um, I spoke with our speaker today, the engineer himself, the rocket scientist himself, um, and he is going to be on at 3.15 a.m. in Israel speaking just for us. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite incredible. And I encourage everyone to join. Um, it starts, a program starts Eastern Standard Time at 8 o'clock. We're going to do Abdullah, a little menorah celebration, some dreidel spinning, some songs, and, uh, and then we're going to jump into the talk. All right. That's it. That formally concludes tonight's class. Stay on if you have questions. We'll see you all soon. Any questions? Yeah, I, I still want to know about the um, comfort. Oh, good question. All right, I'm going to take a look at, at a book. Give me a second. Any other questions in the meantime? No, okay, all right. Give me a moment. I will be right back, and let's see what I can come up with. <laughs> 